This week, I can't believe I've never talked about this place. The history and well-known ghost of Toronto's Hockey Hall of Fame building. So supposedly this was a big story that was broke by the Toronto Star. I'm pretty sure I heard about this article before. Uh, I remember I I, I, I was uh, I have these Google alerts set up. So when something related, I, I think Toronto and Ghost are two of the alerts. So something pops up. I remember seeing the headline and thinking, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not really connected to this building all that much. So I didn't dive too far into it. But it really escaped me. I'm just amazed I haven't covered it up to this point. How many episodes am I in? I know with the Ghostly History podcast, it seems like I'm new. But I was doing the Ghost Guy Daniel podcast, and I think I was like two years into that one. And I try to cover all local locations because that's my focus. You know, I tend to you know, anything southern Ontario because this is where I live. You know, finding the haunted places and in the United States... And then I might, you know, venture out to Europe like last week when I did with the Banshees. But the fact that I haven't covered the Hockey Hall of Fame just, it, it shocked me. I must have been uh, not on the ball, as they say. I could have went many routes with that saying. <laughs> I could say not on the ball. I'll make it very nice. Well, this is why pencils have erasers, as they say. And I'm going to erase that history. And, 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 and this is the beginning. This is where I start. I covered the Toronto's Hockey Hall of Fame is episode one of all the podcasts that I've ever done. So there you go. It's been fixed. It was easy. So uh, I did. Uh, I, I was involved in creating the a Toronto tour at one point, and I found it a very interesting experience. I haven't really talked too much about this because currently it is still sitting on the website, but it's sitting on as hiatus. And it was running before COVID, and when COVID came in, I stopped it for a bit. And I haven't really brought it back because I, I, the, 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 the couple guides that I had who were running it, which are very talented actors, um, it kind of fell through a tad. I may, I may bring it back in the future, but it was an interesting experience being in, in that area of Toronto. I like to call it the Haunted District. If you don't know where I'm talking about, it is the Eaton Center area, Young Dundas Square. It's kind of like the, I guess you could call it a tourist core because it's it's Toronto's version of Times Square. And it's funny when you look at it, so yeah, it's this center of activity because of the Eaton Center and what surrounds it, but it also seems to have the most ghost stories in one district in the entire city. Now, I found that very, very interesting. And the fact that it's Toronto... Uh, obviously, and mine wasn't the only one. So I think there was two other ghost tours that were there, and it was kind of funny because then we like run into each other. It was almost like uh, what's that uh, West Side Story? And then you'd have the uh, dance fights. Not really, but that's what I was hoping for one day. <laughs> Never happened. Never happened to me. And when it was first starting out, I, I actually went out there personally. I drove from Hamilton to Toronto to lead them because I, I like to do that with the new tours. I got to get a feel for it, right? So I, I drove out there many times to do this one. If it wasn't me or the, there was nights when the guides couldn't come out, I would go out and do it. And getting in on Toronto is just an absolute nightmare. Uh, if, if anybody who doesn't live in the city is not familiar, it is a massive city. 
and the traffic going in and out at any time of day is difficult. I mean, even just getting in the streets, I think from the highway, from the Gardner Expressway to the starting location of the Toronto tour without traffic takes like two minutes, literally two minutes. But it doesn't matter because there's traffic. So instead of two minutes, it takes 30 minutes. So you're stuck in traffic on the highway. You're stuck going into the city itself. And I found that to be yeah, very difficult. And then even the guides who were leading it, you know, taking public transit, they were finding it, you know, at times it was difficult getting in. Things would get delayed because of construction. It's just very, very chaotic. Uh, and that's not, that's never been the way I wanted to lead my life. So hence why I backed off a bit. Now, I'm not saying it's never going to come back because I was a huge fan of it. Some of the stories related to that tour, I find amazing. Stopping in front of the McKenzie house. Uh, William Lyne McKenzie, I've talked about him in the past, the rebel of Canada, uh, grandfather of the former prime minister, Mackenzie King. So he was the guy who did the 1840s rebellion. Uh, his house is in that area. It's about a block or two uh, just behind Young Dundas Square. It's a museum today. So we would stop in front of there and we'd tell those stories, and I love that. And then just down the street is St. Michael's Hospital. So we'd go down the street, we'd talk about that, and there's a story of Joe the janitor at St. Michael's, and it's one of my favorites. I think I've shared it on the podcast, if I'm not mistaken. Just look back in the former episode, maybe I'll cover it again in the future. So I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. A, a little bit of a tough area. I mean, it was hard to lead the tours there, uh, first off because of the noise, and second because of the large crowds. So you have like a group of, let's say, 15, 20 people and you're pushing them through crowds and, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it, it can get a little dicey at times. For that reason, some things have caused it to be held back. Again, it might change in the future. Now, we didn't go as far as the Hockey Hall of Fame, hence it was never really in my purview. We just stuck to that area. We, I think the most south we went was the Elgin and Winter Garden Theater. But you can't, you know, do a tour in that area without featuring that place. That's, the, you know, the, the pinnacle of haunted places in Toronto. It's an old theater, first off. Theater's amazingly haunted. And then it has that amazing history behind it being an old vaudeville stage. And the famous names of vaudeville, including George Burns, had performed there. It's just something else. So, yeah, no, that definitely that was featured. Uh, St. Michael's Hospital, the old city hall. That's what I, 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 we, I had personally chosen the old city hall as the starting location, just how, how impressive that building is. And if you don't know what it looks like, just do a search. Old City Hall Toronto and just see it. And imagine that thing just towering over you as you're starting the tours. But again, construction noise, traffic noise, people noise, and it just it, you couldn't set the mood. But I know I see people say it's a downtown core. Same thing with downtown Hamilton. Hard to set the mood. I understand that. But it just didn't feel right. So might put it back to the drawing board in the future. We'll see what happens. If you have any comments or you don't want to use, say, oh, yes, definitely bring it back, just let me know. There's a uh, contact form link in the description of this podcast. But we're not talking about the Toronto area in general. Today, I want to feature one of the best locations to be forgotten by Ghost Guy Daniel, and that's the Hockey Hall of Fame. So for this segment, I'm going to be pulling information from the Toronto Star. 
This is an article written by Paul McLaughlin. And this is all the way back around Halloween time of 2009. So the Hockey Hall of Fame is in an old Bank of Montreal building and very well known within the city historically. So the fact that the ghost is also known, you get major news organizations like the Toronto Star using it as an uh, excuse to have something ghostly related, like spooky for Halloween. And yeah, I know it's a tad bit cheesy to approach it in that regard, especially coming from you know, my personal opinion as a believer in ghost stories, as you know, I don't I don't I don't put any joking into it. I think these are these can be serious stories. I don't like it, but I also respect it. I'm very happy that they do this because then you have a situation like this where the Toronto Star actually reveals new information we didn't know about before. So they actually dive into the history where most people, they just talk about Dorothy, who is the main ghost of the the old building. But they actually can go in and identify who he, she used to be and what happened to her. So this is, this is not rare, but it's an amazing situation when you have a ghost story that is 100% historically proven. So there's this tragedy that occurred inside the building and supposedly the ghost that has been seen there many, 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 many more times in the future was 100% a real person. And the tragedy that surrounds her, which we'll get to in a moment, you know, just adds to that legend. So, you know, then you get more validation in these ghost stories being real. So again, shout out to Paul McLaughlin of the Toronto Star. Thank you so much for writing this article and revealing more information about this amazing ghost story. For more than 50 years, a ghost known as Dorothy has haunted the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. Now, in the early 1990s, a few years before the Hockey Hall of Fame moved into the historic building that had once been a Bank of Montreal branch for close to 100 years, there's a Toronto musician named Joanna Jordan who saw a female ghost looking down to her from a second floor ceiling. Jordan, who was playing the harp at an evening event held in the building's Great Hall, was unaware at the time that a ghost was said to have haunted the space. Quote, I remember it so vividly, she says, because it's one of those things you'll never forget. Jordan refused to go up the second floor by herself when she played at the hall, which opened in 1993, some years later. It was just too spooky up there. Nice to get this information is like somebody who is inside the building at an event. And uh, this is before the Hockey Hall of Fame moved in. I guess they were renting the place out for events. And to have an experience like it wouldn't have really been a focal point back then. So that tells me there's validity to the story because, you know, they wouldn't have been talking about it. Yeah, sure. I mean, this this event happened. It was kind of glossed over even back in the day. The Toronto Star was the one who kind of gave it more information than uh, the original reporting paper, which I'll read the original article in a bit. But before it became the Hockey Hall of Fame, I'm sure like they just didn't really focus on it at all. It's just a cool old building in the city. But then the Hockey Hall of Fame moves in and then Canada, you know, hockey. If you're not from Canada listening to the show, you know, I mean, that's the stereotype. This is a little side note for the non-Canadians. You know hockey's not our national sport. You would think it would be. It's not. It's lacrosse. Lacrosse is the Canadian national sport. 
But if you ask anyone what it is, everybody's going to say hockey, right? Because <laughs> Canadians are just connected with that. So people were seeing this woman, like, uh, what's her name? Joanna Jordan. And they're seeing this woman around the building. They're having experiences inside the place. And even after the Hockey Hall of Fame moved in and continued, I'll have another experience for you in a bit. But they never really asked the question, you know, who is she? And this gets lost in a lot of legends related to ghosts inside buildings. Yeah, they'll have a name for them. Like, say, the ghost is called uh, Colin Swayze. This Captain Colin Swayze of the Angel Inn. And then you have a legend associated with him. That, uh, it is said that, you know, he was killed by the American soldiers during the War of 1812. Again, the Angel Inn. So then you, that's a legend that's created, but there's no real proof that the person actually existed. So asking the question usually doesn't yield the answer unless somebody actually goes in and digs for it. And in this case, they actually dug. So they found out that it was a young woman. She was only 19 years old when she died. Her name is Dorothea May Elliott, hence why they call her Dorothy. Now it is said the tragedy was that she shot herself inside the building in early in the morning of Wednesday, March 11th in 1953. And she died 22 hours later at St. Michael's Hospital. So no, she did not die in the building, but the tragedy occurred there. This is the last thing she saw that could be related to her haunting the place. Now, her death didn't garner much attention from the newspapers of the day. Uh, the first one to report it was a long-defunct paper. It's no longer around, called the Toronto Telegram. They ran a brief item on the day that she had shot herself and reported that the police were checking into the story. Now, I actually, I looked it up because I, I want to be thorough. I want you guys to get the full story. So I looked up this article and I found it. It's not the best quality one, but I'm going to do my best to read it here. Uh, headline, girl bank clerk, 19 dies of gun wound. A 19 year old clerk of the bank of Montreal, young in front streets died today in St. Michael's hospital of a self-inflicted revolver wound in her head. Death came 22 hours after she was found in the washroom of the bank. Doctors were amazed she had lived so long. The attractive girl who lived with her married sister on Burnham Thorpe Road, Islington, is believed by police to have been lonesome for a boyfriend who had left for the weekend to take a job on the boats. Entering the office early, she was kidded, police said, by other employees about getting in so early. She shrugged her shoulders and smiled, then walked over to the messenger's desk. Without being seen, she took the revolver and went to the washroom where she was found shot a short time later. That's it. That's all they wrote. Very small article tells the story, exactly what happened. I, I think the we'll find out in a bit is the rumors of why she did it. Nobody really knows for sure whether it was because of the boyfriend or for other reasons. And that's where the mystery kind of builds upon itself. Getting back to the Toronto Star, when the, the Telegram didn't follow up on the story, but the Toronto Star did, kind of giving themselves a pat on the back, which is well-deserved. Uh, they uh, ran a three-page, three-paragraph item uh, the next day, announced her death, citing the cause as loneliness because her boyfriend had left to take in a job of the boat. So really, it didn't add to it. 
neither paper mentioned her name. That's actually interesting. You know, I read through it. They didn't mention her name once. I guess maybe the family hadn't been informed yet. So it was best to, to leave it. And then a couple days later, the star had a death notice that was released. So, so many rumors over the years. Uh, one said that she was caught stealing money. Another said that she helped the uh, IRA, the Irish Republican Army, and that they were planning to rob the bank to fund their cause back home. And even a psychic got involved. You got a psychic who comes in probably just wanting some promotion and said that uh, she was murdered because she had covered a scheme involving the bank manager, uh, the chief of police, and a judge, all of whom were embezzling money belonging to farmers. That one's a bit of a stretch. But then there's the most common theory. Now, this is the one that a lot of people kind of settle on and say that this is the reason why it occurred and that maybe the the young lady wasn't of sound mind, and that's why. But the most common theory is that she was having an affair with a uh, either a teller or a branch manager who was a married man, uh, had an apartment in the bank, and that's where they would have their 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 uh, untoward rendezvous. And supporting this later on, someone who decided to not go on the record, so they remained anonymous, uh, said about her, quote, she was a beautiful young woman who was very popular. Now, remember, this was in the 1950s, so they compared her to an actress. You're not going to compare her to, like, Megan Fox or uh, Scarlett Johansson. Instead, they would compare her. She says, she looked like the actress Rita Hayworth. Do you guys know Rita Hayworth? Yeah, if you don't know, watch, uh, if you haven't already, The Shawshank Redemption. And if you might be clicking now, uh, she was the first poster that... Um, Oh my goodness, I blanked on his name. What was Tim Robbins' character name in that? Andy. Andy Dufresne. Thank you. <laughs> Say that to myself. Uh, the first poster that he put up on the wall. I don't worry, I won't give any spoilers, although you should have watched it by now. That's on you. But the first poster that he put up on his wall in his cell was Rita Hayworth. And then they, they had watched the movie that she was in. Just beautiful woman. Absolutely beautiful woman. Uh, so actually, I don't you know Shawshank Redemption is a short story that was written by Stephen King. It's from the Four Seasons short story book. So Four Seasons had uh, four stories in it. And three of the four stories, yeah, I don't think all of them. I think just three of them were made into movies. So you had the Shawshank Redemption, you had The Body, which became Stand By Me, and you had Apt Pupil, which also became a movie. I think uh, Ian McKellen and... Edward Furlong or Brad Renfro, one of those two was in that one. But, uh, you know, all great stories. But yeah, the, the story shot, it was uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. That was the title of the story in the book. So Rita Hayworth was a big part of that. She was very well known back in the day, so I don't, I'm not shocked that they would compare a young woman to Rita Hayworth back in the 50s. So in, uh, in sense of uh, Dorothea's mindset on why she did this, they swore one of the sources said that she had been orphaned as a young child. So she, her parents uh, both died a few years apart when she was only nine years old. So I guess the last parent died when she was nine. So she lost that in her life. 
And they say that's, you know, one of the reasons for her mindset. Now, one of the characters that comes into this was a man named Len Redwood. He was very involved with what happened back in 1953. And he was one of the ones who came forward later on. This is going back to the 1980s. And they had an interview related to Dorothea and what had happened to her. So he was the bank's messenger back in the day. And he described Dorothea as, quote unquote, the life of the party. Said she was the most popular girl in the bank. Now, uh, he also mentioned about her shooting herself. Said it happened the woman's second floor washroom. And that she used the bank's revolver. So it was a simple time back in those days. I guess one of the ways you could fight against bank robbers was to have a revolver in every desk. So there was a an official bank revolver. It was a thirty eight caliber gun, and it was Lens. It was so it says it was kept in his desk. So that was Lens' revolver. Uh, so years later, Lens' son Vic said of his late father, he had told him. He said, "Quote: He told him that he and an ambulance attendant." had carried Dorothy's uh, passed-out body downstairs and had put her in a wooden Windsor-style chair. So these are like the uh, the bank chairs of the day. And that uh, the Renwood family had kept that chair. So I, I don't know the reason why. I'm not even going to guess the reason why. I don't think it's for darker reasons. I'll say that often. It's not for darker reasons. Probably it's just a nice chair. Maybe they had an opportunity to keep it and because it's connected to their family. I don't know. I don't know, but they kept it. So it was in the parents' cottage to the 1990s. So I guess they didn't have a stretcher or something. They carried her down in a chair. So this gives you an idea of the history around Dorothy, the reason why she haunts the building, but it doesn't really give you too much of an idea of how much she haunts the place. And when you look online for these stories, I mean, there's stories that are put into ghost books, which get into much more detail, and then they f- tend to disappear off the internet. So they're not easy to find. I knew uh, uh, Google Books, when they started that up, I thought, you know, this stuff would then be findable. And then you could say, okay, well, I found the story. I want to know more. I can go and buy the book, or I can get it out from the library or something like that. But that really doesn't happen. You know, it's not very often that when you search something up, even though it's been covered in one of these books, it doesn't usually come back in the search engine, which I find to be a little bit frustrating, especially for somebody like me. You know, it's like some of these these stories in these locations, they were written years and years ago. So it's not something that you can just get information that was done recently. You have to actually go out and you have to dig for that. And, you know, I don't always, even if you go to the library and look into it, you know, what they'll have on site for sure is only related to local history. So to find out about a place in Toronto, I got to go to Toronto. I mean, that's possible because I'm not too far away. But let's say I'm doing research or something in New York City. Well, then I got to go to New York City? No, I'm not going to do that. So it's best to be able to kind of dig into these books remotely and just have it point to you. But then maybe that's just me being spoiled. Right, I try and think of the historians and researchers and journalists, you know, the article journalists of back in the day before Google even existed. I can only imagine how they get that information. I mean, you just have to call out, you know, call these locations and say, do you have anything? And then they would have to maybe put in some kind of request for a search. I mean, just the thought of it kills me inside. Like, I'm, I'm just stressed right now just thinking about that. No, I don't want to do that. No, I don't. I don't. 
But thanks for the Toronto Star article. There is a couple experiences. Of course, we have the lady from Bihor, the uh, Joanna Jordan, saw a woman on the second level. We now have learned that Dorothy took her life in a second-floor woman's washroom. So her being on the second level makes sense. And we also have another one. Seems she said on the second level. It was a fellow named Rob Hines. He formerly worked at the hall as a special events supervisor, and he had an encounter. So while preparing for an event, he entered a narrow kitchen that runs behind a second-floor conference room to get coffee urns. It was around 6 a.m., so it's still that uh, that borderline between early morning and the sun coming up, depending on the time of year. If it's winter time, it's probably still dark. And while he was back there at 6 a.m., he said a strong feeling as if he was being watched by someone. But he also stated, strangely enough, but different than that, enticed him to enter the conference room. Now, I'm not sure what he means by different than that. Like you're being watched, how can it be different? You feel like somebody's there in the room with you. But, you know, this is a personal experience. I'm sure he knows what he's talking about. So it enticed him to enter the conference room, which was still completely in darkness. Uh, Quote, one of the chairs, and this is the God's honest truth, was turning as if a breeze was in there, he says. Says it actually moved right into his hand. So I assume what he means by that, he was he was standing near it. He probably reached out because that's what we tend to do. If you've never had an experience where something is moving like creepily in front of you, and you're not sure why, your your initial reaction is always to reach out. Strange, right? I guess it's just as humans, we need to examine these things. And I've heard stories, uh, former ghost guides had similar type experiences, something's moving. And me personally as well. It's just the first natural reaction is to reach out towards it. So I do believe him on that. Uh, he says it actually moved right into his hand. So he reached out and touched his hand. He also said that he's re- he's normally skeptical about ghosts. But that this one definitely freaked him out. And he ran out of there after it was done. So I mean is it, the fact that it's all focused on the second floor tells me something interesting. That her energy is kind of set in that space. Because this is where the tragedy occurred. Yeah, she didn't die there, but maybe, you know, and this is getting into kind of flaky territory, so please do not judge me. But when something truly violent happens to a person, is it possible that they can leave their body? So what I'm stating is that when they carried her body down, even though she was still breathing, that her essence, her energy still remained up on the second floor because it's such a shock, such an absolute shock. And, you know, even the doctor said they were surprised that she was still alive, so her body was probably lifeless. So to say that her energy remained or that because it was the last place she saw, so she kind of creates this situation around her, or in the end, it's just what I say about a lot of these ghostly experiences, it's just residual. Because it was such a, you know, a shocking, uh, crazy amount of energy and a tragic occurrence that, you know, that's what's ringing out. And because it happened to her essence, her energy signature, that it remains up in that space. Again, I'm sorry if it's getting into flaky territory, uh, but 
I mean, when I think about some of these ghost stories I've talked about in the past, energy is what it's really all about. Everything, everything in the world is all about that energy. So when you have that emotional burst of energy that occurs and the feelings that initially led up to what she did, you know, I could see that being the hotspot. When you talk about a haunted hotspot, this is a perfect example of that. So why she's remaining on the second floor, I think that kind of explains it a little bit. Again, it's just me giving my own personal opinion from hearing years and years and reading years and years of ghost stories. But, uh, I mean, it kind of makes sense to me. Somebody who doesn't believe ghosts will say, Daniel, you are a crazy mf'er, And I would say, hey, maybe you're right. But it, it kind of makes sense to me. Anyway, that's, that's uh, the basics of the show. I definitely wanted to cover this place. I hope I did it justice. If you want to visit it, I highly recommend that. If you ever do head out Toronto way, put it on the list. If not just to go for the Hockey Hall of Fame to see that, but just to be inside the building. And as I always say, when you go to these haunted places, uh, never be too nervous to ask employees about any ghostly experiences. You'll get one of two reactions to that. Uh, first reaction is, ha, 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 yeah, I get asked about that all the time. And then they'll oddly just stop and not talk beyond that point. It just gets awkward, but that's fine. Or they'll actually tell you a story. Now, saying the truly haunted places, like the Prince of Wales Hotel, for example, usually everybody in the building will have something to tell. If it's really over-the-top haunted and it's filled with people who are pro-ghost, they'll have some experiences. And by pro-ghost, I mean they're just open to the idea. They don't have to be true believers. But anti-ghost means you're closed down to it, right? You just you think ghosts aren't real and that they're ridiculous, so then you just don't even look for it. So if something were to happen that's subtle, and most ghost experiences are subtle, you won't even notice it. Or like that lady playing the instrument. Um, I keep forgetting her name. It's such an easy name, too. Joanna Jordan. Uh, you know, she, she, she saw this, this woman looking down from the second floor, and if she had not thought of something ghostly, she might have just assumed that's a real person and not followed up. Because I'm not saying it was a real person, because I'm sure she asked people, is there anybody up on the second floor? And I'm sure they said no, because she's very sure about it. But then again, maybe she didn't ask. I'm saying it's possible that she probably asked. But if you were closed off to it and you saw that, your brain, you're just going to say to yourself, oh, that's just somebody who snuck up there. Don't even bother following up on it. Or you just see the corner eyes like, yeah, it's just a person watching from up there. Who cares? So you don't look at it anymore, and being closed down to it means you don't even know that you had an experience. So yeah, anyway, that's a, just off on a tangent there. Uh, the moral of that story is to keep an open mind. And the other side of this is I hope you enjoyed this episode covering Toronto's Hockey Hall of Fame. My name is Daniel, and thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you next week.